Welcome to the Green Edge podcast with Michael Cross and me, Fraser Harper. This is our update for the week ending 11th of August 2023. This week, the Green Edge has turned yellow. Well, we've not exactly turned yellow, but we have turned to yellow. That's Yellow Interiors, to be precise, a commercial interiors design house run by Alison John and Joe Bowler down there near Southampton. Now, when we talked to Joe a week or two back, she told us about Yellow's range of services, all the way from concept to completion, taking in space planning, detailed design and project management. But Yellow's big thing is sustainable office interiors, and that includes reusing or refurbishing office furniture, which Joe tells us is readily available from some of the specialist circular economy suppliers they regularly work with like Traco UK and Portsmouth, who we featured last year in a post as part of our series on B Corporations. Another part of Yellow's sustainable brief is working with innovative materials, like cork for flooring. But hang on, surely cork isn't that innovative, is it? Some of the contractors who fit Yellow's designs seem to think it is. Let's hear from Joe Bowler on the subject. As soon as you say to a flora, we're using cork, suddenly there's just that reluctance and you're thinking, well, come on, it's not that difficult. But cork hasn't been used for an awful long time. It's become a bit of a niche product and we want it to be a lot less niche, but we need people to install it. And when we're specifying these products for a project, we have in the back of our mind, this would be an amazing product to specify. Is anybody going to be able to install it? Are we going to put people off? Is the main contractor then going to go to the client and say, oh, this is a bit tricky. We're going to use this instead. So we need to be quite pragmatic about these things, but we can't give up on them at the same time. We can't just always take the easy option. And that comes down to we we need contractors who are going to want to take on environmental responsibility in a way. They need to be going with this and they need to be helping us and feeding back to us as well what the problems are. Because what happens is you don't hear from them and then you discover, oh, right, they went for vinyl in the end, did they? That wasn't in our specification. Michael, Alison and Joe at Yellow are building an interesting database that we think might have a wider use, don't we? We do. And I think the use is in partially around the education of designers, all types of designers, having to have much greater material knowledge. And this takes you into, I think, a slightly broader avenue of inquiry and comment around the role of designers shaping the future and the pathway to net zero, in that it's the designers who decide what materials, how they're going to be used and their source, and also how they're going to be put together. So if you think of the number of designers in this country, and there are over 220,000 of them, there is a significant shift perhaps in some of their education and training that needs to be required. And what Joe is doing is self-educating by creating this database. And when you talk about that number of designers, you're talking about design across all fields. That's graphic and industrial, but excludes architects, which is another 40 or 50,000. And the design economy If you lump that together with the creative economy, you get to the best part of 2 million people. It's a really important part of our economy that doesn't get covered because it hasn't got a sick code or a sock code that neatly fits it. I can feel a post coming on about that, Michael. I think you're about right. 
Well, you can read all about yellow interiors in this week's post, which I need hardly remind you can be found at greenedge.substack.com with this podcast available on all the major streaming platforms, including Apple, Google and Amazon. But before we move on, let's hear from Joe again, this time with a cautionary tale on the use of recycled plastics. We attended a plastics conference Mm. at Portsmouth University. It was phenomenal and a lot of it flew straight over my head and a lot of it sunk in and made me really reassess what we are doing. Things like microplastics in fabrics. And I still want to know more. I understand, obviously, with our clothing, and that's going through the washing machine, microplastics, the fibres from that. But we started specifying upholstery fabric that was recycled plastic bottles. And we thought, oh, this is great. Isn't this fantastic? Bottles straight into this lovely, luscious velvet fabric. And since going to that conference, I realise we may have made some horrible mistake. There's a lot of suggestion that recycled plastic fibres actually break off much more easily. They don't have that longevity. Obviously, they're not going through the wash in quite the same way that our clothing is. But still, I'm now thinking, I don't think we should be specifying any plastic fibres in a way. It's difficult because you have the healthcare sector for easy clean, for the hygiene elements. A lot of that is all about plastic fibres. I do understand that. But now where relevant, we're specifying 100% wool. Just as a matter of interest, 100% wool upholstery fabric doesn't need to have any fire retardancy added to it. It's got natural fire retardancy. So I love this idea that we're creating these plastic fabrics and then we need to add things so they don't burst into flames. And you're thinking, why weren't we just using wool in the first place? Obviously, there are concerns with sort of vegan animal welfare or that kind of thing. But generally, British wool is a byproduct of the meat industry. If we all stop eating meat, then let's eat this. But, you know, as there's spare wool going, we use it. Now, Michael, we've had a busy week talking to people for the City and Guild Screen Edge podcast. Let's talk about one or two of these good folks. Let's start with our friend Professor David Ray up there at Edinburgh University. Yes, I think, Dave, well, we spoke for an hour, but two powerful points came to me. One was a piece around the net number of new jobs arising from net zero. And he was putting it in a range coming from work from the Climate Change Committee between 135,000 and 725,000 could be the net new jobs total. And the key point here is the 135 is sort of given. The discretionary bit of over 600,000 other jobs really depends on consistent major policy initiatives to really drive us down that path. The second big point that came out from that discussion for us was around the number of jobs that will be impacted by the move to net zero. Now, Dave was quoting again from work he'd been doing with the Climate Change Committee, and about a fifth of jobs in the economy will be directly impacted, and about another fifth are enabling jobs. That is 12 million people, probably around that sort of number. So it's a lot of people. So the scale of this is huge. And I'm not sure if that's fully grasped by some people who talk about the impact on the labour market. We tend to hone in on individual skills around heat pumps, EVs, and et cetera, et cetera. And someone else we were introduced to a little while back is David Warns, who is principal at Chelmsford College in Essex. Yes, well, David is proving to be a bit of a powerhouse, like building on his work from West London College in pushing ahead and building on what's already been achieved at Chelmsford, but also across Essex. 
And again, in a lengthy conversation with David, three points came up. He made many, but around the barriers to doing more and having a greater impact. And the three points he raised with us was around careers advice, right down to primary schools, the issue of attracting and retaining talented teachers and lecturers in the colleges to deliver the training and skills development around that zero. And the final point, and this ties in very much with Dave Ray, the whole need for market certainty so they can plan a path towards the future. Their ability of a local college to take risk is close to zero. It has to have some certainty. And this is where it is looking to government and business, and particular government, to chart that path over the next four to five years and beyond. And we'll be incorporating nuggets from both Dave and David in the upcoming City and Guild Screen Edge podcasts. Now, Michael, I know you're a fount of knowledge when it comes to all things green. So I'd like to ask a little advice, if I may. The thing is, I'm thinking about my next staycation. And I have a bit of a quandary about where to go. You see, I'm thinking I might hire a nice EV for a day or two, but I'm going to need somewhere that has plenty of electricians to fit all those charging points and come and fix the thing if it breaks down. I know you've been looking at some figures recently from our friends at the Electrical Contractors Association. Where might you recommend? Well, you've got quite a wide choice if you look at the ratio of electricians to the overall population. You know, Essex, for example, comes third in the UK. But if you want to go to the Everest of electricians in this country, it would be Dorset. Dorset has more electricians per head of population than anywhere else. It's one electrician to 150 people in the population. So make your way down to the south coast and sunny Weymouth, perhaps. Right, Weymouth then. In Dorset, here on the Green Edge, we most certainly do. Thank you for listening to this Green Edge podcast. This podcast series accompanies the Green Edge newsletter, to which you can subscribe at greenedge.substack.com. The Green Edge is produced by Blue Mirror Insights, 